So can you just start by giving me your name and your current affiliation? Uh, so my name is Shunetra Gupta and I am uh, a professor in uh, what is soon to become the Department of Biology, but we've been zoology and plant sciences so far. And my official title is Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology. Thanks very much. And without telling me your entire life story, because I think I don't think we've got time for that, uh, can you just, in a few sentences, give me an idea of how you got to where you are now? Uh, so I was born in Calcutta, spent a lot of my early childhood in Africa and, and in the United Kingdom, and uh, but then returned to Calcutta for my what I call my formative years, secondary school, um, and then by sort of coincidence almost ended up um, at university in uh, the United States. I went to Princeton and there I studied a combination of um, biology and mathematics uh, which uh, what I realised is I was always very interested in applying mathematics to real world problems and I thought physics was perhaps the right field for me but then um, I found this new burgeoning area of mathematical biology um, or as an undergraduate which really attracted me and that's where I started think, I mean, engaging in all of that um, so that I graduated in 87 came to the United Kingdom to, to London to do a PhD in um, mathematical epidemiology Is that at Imperial College? at Imperial College yeah. um, <coughs> and uh, then got a fellowship uh, with the Wellcome Trust, an tr early career sort of training fellowship, well, just a start -up, starting <laughs> uh, sort of fellowship, and, that, and then I got a senior fellowship, and uh, in the meantime moved to Oxford, and then in 1999 I um, uh, secured this permanent position within the Department of Zoology. So how would you in encapsulate the kind of big question that drives your science and your, your approach to your, to your work? So I'm broadly interested in how uh, path well, in-host pathogen systems and how they interact at an ecological level and how that um, drives their evolution. So the evolutionary ecology of infectious disease systems is what I'm interested in. And But you take a mathematical approach to, to understand so that. So my training, as I've said, has been in mathematical modelling. So yes, the, the, my, my, the, the fundamental approach is very much to develop mathematical models to try and gain insights into how these systems work. Uh, but in the last decade or so, uh, we have gone from these mathematical models to testing some of the hypotheses they generate. And in fact, um, this has had some very significant translational if, um, impacts. So uh, a model uh, we developed for influenza, which we published in 2007, so 15 years ago now, uh, it was quite controversial. We tested it. How did you test it? We tested it uh, in the laboratory um, by 
So, so the idea with mathematical models is we take what data we have and we try and come up with a coherent hypothesis of what's actually going on in these systems. And in 2007, we suggested that perhaps the conventional view of how influenza was evolving, the influenza virus population, was not correct. And that actually most of it was um, driven by immune responses targeting uh, particular regions of the virus which had a limited amount of variability. So the human population was driving the evolution of the virus? That was already population. understood, yes. but, but the idea was that the, the main targets of immunity were highly variable. And we posited that actually the main targets of immunity were not as variable. They were variable, but they had limited variability. And so obviously this was met with some scepticism. Uh, and obviously the only way to resolve all of this is by experiment. So the first experiment we did, because one of the testable predictions of this model was that children who had only, for example, experienced a single flu strain would have immunity against previous flu strains because of the limited amount of variability the flu population would be forced to recycle some of these regions. Um, so we tested that by taking blood from children and uh, looking to see if they could, that the antibodies in their blood from recent exposure could neutralize historical isolates, you know, as far back as 1934, for example. And we found very good evidence of that. That they could? Yes. Mm. And then um, we went further and um, Craig Thompson, postdoc I'd employed to, to do this, took the initiative to, to try and identify those regions, um, which he was successful in doing, which then formed the basis of a um, new universal flu vaccine, which we have patented and licensed to a, an investor, a US investor, who is now helping us to, to really take this. So the idea being that instead mm. of having to redesign the flu vaccine every year, which has happened mm. recently, um, you would just have one vaccine that would That's work. correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that vaccine hasn't made it to the clinic yet? Or oh no, it will no. take a while, <laughs> yes. but we have got the US, <coughs> we have the patent for it. Mm. Mm. Uh, that, that's been granted and, um, and it has been licensed and we are now trying to develop it to a stage where obviously then it will have to be handed over to, um, well, probably industry to, to take it forward, although, um, my, I mean, ideally for me it would be something that was done at a different level, but that's because, I mean, I'm motivated very much by... Um, principles that I guess you could call socialist in that I would I think you know life-saving treatments and vaccines should really be under the control of the government rather than big pharma. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, I mean was that essentially a new um, uh, departure for you to to take one of your theoretical predictions and, and really test it in the lab? Um, I've always been uh, a collaborator very closely with um, the laboratory scientists and clinicians and field workers to test hypotheses because I think it's fruitless to simply 
hypothesize and, and then not test something. So that is what I've always done in, in my career. But this was the first time that I had the opportunity to do so in my own laboratory. Mm, mm. Uh, and I you know, did not anticipate that it would lead to such a tangible translation mm. um, situation where, you know, the, the impact, and obviously it's, we're a long way from saying this is actually going to work, um, but it's, um, it's actually happening, mm. which mm. is quite not what I expected. Mm. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful vindication of how theoretical work can lead, can have obvious, I mean, can have translational impacts. I do think that it, it, it doesn't mean that, I mean, I strongly believe that theoretical work, should, that, that the work that people do within academic settings, that we should not be obliged to demonstrate short term, in the short term mm -hmm. anyway, um, these sorts of tangible impacts. But it's very pleasing that this is what what happened with our research, and you know, it puts me in a position, I guess, where I can say that this has happened, and this is what will happen if we invest in academia and in basic scientific research. But it's important also not to put scientists under pressure to provide sort of examples of this kind of impact. So let's finally arrive at COVID. Can you mm -hmm. remember how you first heard about it and uh, how soon you started thinking this was something that you, you uh, that, that fitted into? Well, obviously, <laughs> you're an expert in uh, the, the, the evolution of, of, uh, of pathogens, so you were obviously going to be interested. But take, take me back to how, how you first so, it. So I, I think the report started, when was it, early December? 2019 would mm -hmm. be when the first reports started um, coming, out of coming out of China, and my um, reaction was um, not very different to what it is now, which is that you know I think we do regularly experience new waves of, of uh, in some senses, known viruses. So I, I consider SARS-CoV-2 to be part of a known family of coronaviruses. Um, and typically, and this is true of SARS-1, SARS uh, what the, the, the toll that it takes is on the vulnerable sectors of the population. And so right at the outset, I felt that we should be very, you know, we should have a proper plan in place to protect the vulnerable. And the rest of us, would do, uh, did not need to worry. We'd probably get sick. Some of us might get quite sick, but you know, we, we didn't need to worry. And in fact, the way that we deal with these viruses, including the four that were in circulation at the time, is by maintaining a state of endemic equilibrium where men, most of us are, are immune um, at any point in time. Uh, which means that the risk to the vulnerable population is low, or as low as it could possibly be. 
and also because the vulnerable population will by then, you know, at an endemic state, most of the vulnerable population will have been exposed, you know, uh, before they become vulnerable, they um, are at low risk. But that's, you could see that that was, would be a state that it would evolve to. Yes. Mm -hmm. But so in the interim, you really needed to focus on focus it, focus on protecting the vulnerable. Yeah. That was really the main the main thing. And one way to protect the vulnerable is actually for the rest of the population to become immune. But while that's happening, mm-hmm. the, so let's let's just go back. Yeah, to, it is. Yes. So you, you so that was actually, my fir- my first reaction yes. was and you, and you published a paper on that at the end of March. Is that right? So so that was so this is December. So December, in December, yeah. I just my feeling was okay, this will spread, mm. has already spread. Mm-hmm. It had to have happened. I mean, mm. knowing the rates at which these sorts of infections spread. Mm. If it's SARS, I mean, some people have been fairly relaxed because SARS-1 had been contained fairly well and MERS had been contained in a particular mm. area. So the idea that it might become globally significant um, was something that I think quite a lot of people were relatively complacent about it. That's true. Uh, That that was a possibility that it would not spread far. I think the reasons why um, SARS uh, was actually contained is because we have a lot of cross-immunity to these viruses because they are part of the family of coronaviruses. Mm. So yes... Some kinds of common cold. I mean, it's... Yeah, no, no, they they are. They typically yeah. have, have very little impact, mm. except, of course, sadly, you know, some vulnerable people will die, mm. um, but far fewer than die of flu or pneumococcal disease, for example. Um, so, yes, there was a possibility that it would remain. Uh, in you know, it wouldn't spread spread out of China. That was one possibility, but I think. It was clear already by mid-December that it was had spread out, and so my, you know, that was a possibility. But I would have, my gut feeling was that this is going to spread, and that it was already spreading. And so when I got ill at the end of December, I thought I've got, I think I've got this. And um, several other people were very ill between. That period, that that time, and March when we locked down, and I think they were that it was that the I I still strongly believe that the virus had spread quite substantially in certain parts of the country in that period. So, yes, so, so there are two possibilities. One is that it would have contained, been contained, and that was a very reasonable thing to think. Uh, it, it's very unfortunate that the whole discussion around this has been so polarised, and, and you know, it, it's not. It was not unreasonable to believe that it would not spread. Not unreasonable to think it had only just arrived. But it was also not unreasonable, and I think the right answer was that it had already spread. And that one of the reasons I thought so is because the detection was by a very obviously bright clinician who detected a cluster of a particular type of pneumonia in Wuhan. To get to that point where you see a cluster of cases in hospital 
to me, suggests it's been spreading for at least a month or so in that population. And given the amount of air traffic and just general connectivity, international connectivity, it seemed very unlikely that it hadn't arrived here. Now, one possibility would have been it arrives here and it fizzles out. Um, we didn't know at that point. But I did feel that there was um, a strong likelihood that it would spread quite widely and that we needed to be worried, not for the general population, but for those at risk. Mm-hmm. And so what was, uh, I may not have gone back far enough, was that there was a March publication, was that your first one? Okay, so what happened after that is that it was clear it was spreading. Mm-hmm. And so... You mean by the time it got to Italy? Instead, yes, Italy exactly. Italy, okay. But it was also very obvious that it was doing exactly what these coronaviruses, or many of these viruses do, which is particularly affecting vulnerable you know, people who were either immunosenescent, meaning their immune systems weren't able to handle this, or people with comorbidities. So it seemed to me that what needed to happen straight away was some you know, very you know, proper shielding measures to be put in place proper recommendations um, to put in place for those who might be at risk and for the rest of the population to simply go about their business as normal. seemed to me to be the rational strategy, um, but it also seemed, but, but what clear, and I did not expect lockdowns, which had never ever been part of any public health policy, to be instituted in this case. But then it became clear they were going to be instituted um, and that filled me with dread because I come from India. The idea of locking down in a slum is instant death for a lot of people. It's an instant loss of life, instant hunger, instant um, lack of access to the limited kind of forms of education and and social care, anything that people um, receive, as it is, of course, in this country for a segment of the population. So that was my, that was what motivated me to enter into into this debate. Um, Because up to that point, of course, and, and subsequently, I was never consulted by the university on this. I mean, you know, here I am, Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology, um, with a believed pretty fairly decent track record in this area. Also with the next, you know, it was making vaccines. Um, but nobody uh, thought to talk to me, speak to me. Uh, obviously the government wasn't approaching me, but that's understandable. So, and that's fine, I've always stayed out of these things. But at that point, I was so concerned about this twist, this turn, that I felt I, I felt I wanted to do something. But then what could I do? I mean, my expertise was in mathematical modeling. 
so I went back to look at, I mean, I, so then I did the only thing I could do, which was to put out a paper to ask people to critically examine the assumptions under which we were imposing lockdowns. And the, the, what had happened is that a model had been produced by the Imperial College Group, uh, which is completely valid. Um, what they'd done is they'd produced a, a model, a sort of computer simulation of a, a standard epidemic process, and they had fitted to such data as were available at the time. But what our paper in uh, March, the, the paper that we, was still in preprint form, because no journal will, will accept it, because they, um, well, it was seen to be a political statement rather than a scientific paper. But what that scientific paper says is that you can actually fit a whole range of models to the available data. So rather than say this is what's going to happen and make a predict firm prediction, what we needed to do was urgently go out and collect data and to see to what extent has this already spread. And which, you know, it might have been that once one had get, had that data, you'd still say, well, actually, we must lock down, or we must, I'm not a policymaker. But I felt that, that that premise needed to be examined. And the only way to do that is to try and find out how many people have already had. Which, in fact, is completely uncontroversial. And, and, and that's There's what nothing, actually, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's <laughs> actually what happened. The, you know, mm. David Stewart made the, mm. made the spike protein so that mm. they could do the ELISA test and, and mm. the ONS yeah, began well, doing Yeah, even before that, survey. we, in, in my lab, Craig Thompson, who had developed the flu vaccine, for which we had to have this assay that, to test whether people were, had neutralising antibodies, mm. within a week, Craig had developed an assay to look for antibodies to neutralising antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So we had that there. But then we couldn't get the samples. I mean, what should have happened at that point is there should have been a national coordination because the ELISAs and all of those other techniques at that point were still quite... They, they hadn't been... Um, uh, validated. Validated or, I mean... Yeah, there was a lot of variability in there. I'm not saying that the methodology that we developed was also was perfect either, but what we should have done is we should have all had a coordinated effort to try and understand what the level, you know, how far the, the virus had spread. Mm -hmm. And what was your hunch about how far it might have spread? I, I, I so still think it spread quite, had quite spread quite considerably by then in certain parts of the country. So we finally got some samples from Scotland, which indicated that it had arrived there. It had arrived um, probably around the end of March. I'm sorry, end of February. And we, we could see, we were looking at blood donors. We could see that the uh, rates were creeping up into April. So it spread a bit, but then it was halted. And the reason it was halted is because of seasonality. So once you move into the warmer seasons, yes, yes, yes. warmer months, yeah, yeah stops spreading. Yes, yeah. So, so what you had at that point was a heterogeneous profile, where I think in London it had spread quite considerably. In other parts, it had not. But the ONS 
serology study was only finding about 10%. The erroneous serology study um, was conducted... So one of the problems with uh, doing serology, which we realised, was that first of all, not everyone develops antibodies. Secondly, they decay at a very rapid rate. So unlike flu, um, you can't actually figure out the extent to which it's spread. So by you, doing the serology. you had called for serology studies, mm. but when they happened, you came to think that actually the data were not reliable. Is that what well, the data, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're reliable data, but they don't. You have to factor in the decay rate of the antibodies, mm. and I didn't realise. Well, there are lots of things. First of all, what what I yeah. So where I I had hoped that we'd be able to do the serology and say, look, ninety percent people have already had it. Which, I mean, not ninety, but I assumed about. 30-40% would have had it. I think that's correct because in London in September seropositivity was 20%. So if you factor in the decay rate I think there was a pretty uh, serious increase in seropositivity, in exposure in the early um, in January, February of 2020. I think that's well. Now, two years on, it's the only way to explain the dynamics that we've observed Apart at the time. From, as you say, there was the seasonality, uh, but no seasonality has to come into it as well. Yeah, but also the fact that we had a lockdown. Yes, but the lockdowns. Now we know they did not do anything to stop spread of the virus. So we didn't then. So there were two competing hypotheses. One is that the lockdown stopped the spread. The other is that a combination of herd immunity and seasonality caused the can explain the epidemic patterns everywhere. Um, those two opposite poles, obviously the truth lies somewhere in between, but the data suggests now very much that lockdowns did. And this is not something I anticipated. I thought the lockdowns would do something. It was a, the question I was trying to get into the, uh, to be debated was, you know, how we dealt with the situation given the lockdowns have a very high cost. So I was not saying lockdowns don't work in 2020 because I didn't know. Nobody knew. What I was saying is that lockdowns have an enormous cost. So let's try this other strategy of focus protection instead. It's not because lockdowns don't work. Mm. I didn't know that. How did we know? How would we know that? It, at some, we don't know. We didn't know then. You know, obviously, again with lockdowns, you know that a full lockdown, if everyone's locked into their homes, it's got to work. You know that. You know that it doesn't. It, it's logical to assume that some level of restriction or movement will reduce the spread. But what we don't know, if you look at the way that these systems behave, a small, a reduction, even half, should we say, um, if even if you halve the rate at which something spreads, it will still spread. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously mm -hmm. the lockdown wasn't ever total because there were certain yeah, things that had to keep going. I mean, Absolutely. Healthcare yeah. settings, for instance, mm. no. hospitals, exactly. uh, care homes. Mm -hmm. 
where we know no, that's right. infection occurred, yes. they have to keep working. Exactly. So, so given that a, you know, a complete you know, gaffer tape lockdown, it, it, well, we've seen what happens when you try and institute it, that that wasn't going to happen. We know that if you completely lock everyone down, it can't possibly spread. Mm. You know that if you don't lock anyone down, it will spread. Is it? But what, what's the shape of the curve in between? Mm. We don't know that. We didn't know that then. We do know now that it's actually, that, you, that it goes up very quickly. You know, as soon as you abandon the complete lockdown state, yeah. it very quickly, it just spreads. And that, and that is entirely in the nature of these, of how infectious diseases mm-hmm. of this sort spread. And we've seen with Omicron, for example, you know, there was a study that came out showing that 25% of New Yorkers got infected between April and May. This year? Yeah. 2022? This year? Yes, yes. Now, there is no reason to believe that exactly the same thing did not happen two years ago. Um, there is this idea that Omicron no, is was, yeah. more transmissible. I think yeah. that's absolute garbage. I think there is absolutely no reason to believe that. I think Omicron is... There is nothing in basic epidemiological, you know, there is very little to support that idea. I think that's something that people are conveniently believing in right now. But I think that the the first variant that came along was very, they're, they're all transmissible. You don't need to be very transmissible anyway, mm-hmm. if you just look at standard epidemiological model. As long as you have an Arnold that's an excess of unity, mm-hmm. it will spread. Mm-hmm. And and when you come into a naive population, it will spread very quickly. And what the all these non-pharmaceutical interventions do is they lower. Um, I mean, they, they lower the herd immunity threshold. Yes. A little bit, or, or maybe a lot. Depends. As I said, we didn't know the time to what extent it could lower it mm. but it, they do lower it I'm sure but it doesn't make a difference so there was a, an article in the New York Times yesterday which sort of said yes these interventions work but they don't make a difference uh, and it, it, although it sounds paradoxical I think that's correct in some ways that, but, but they there's no reason to completely say of course it doesn't work and or, or to not wear a mask when you're visiting an uncle person. You know, one doesn't need to dismiss it all, particularly at an individual level. I think you should take every precaution you possibly can if you're visiting a vulnerable person. And also, you know, locking down or, or isolating vulnerable people from risk, particularly at a time when risk is very high. Uh, I hope it works, because otherwise what else do we have? Really, we have very little. Well, I think that was the crux of it. I mean, my reading of the responses to your initial paper and and subsequent, we'll come on to Mm. that in a minute, um, was the not that your 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 theoretical approach Mm. was wrong in any way, but that it simply wasn't practical Mm -hmm. on the grounds that first of all, how do you identify who's vulnerable? Because the vulnerable doesn't just mean everybody over eighty. You've you've got. ethnic issues, you've got people who in forward-facing, sorry, public-facing 
Well, so I think that there. actually comes to the... Uh, we, we are getting to the Great Barrington Declaration because I didn't, at that point, I mean, in May, I was simply saying, we don't... We mustn't jump. We... But you'd already started using the term focused protection by May, hadn't you? I, think I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I Actually, thought that was no, the right no. way forward. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Okay, well, we can, yeah. I'm, so let's just, let's just okay, let's talk about the concept of focused protection. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how, in your mind, is that going to work? Okay, first of all, it was going to work. A, lot of, a large part of it is simply a subset of what we instituted in lockdown, which is that vulnerable people stay at home. But who were the vulnerable people? That's well, the we know. Question. We absolutely were very... This is the point where it's absolute, it was absolutely obvious who the vulnerable people were. They were people of a certain age group. I mean, you could see... It was in the data. It was completely clear that the risk, the proportion, the risk was located very much in those of a certain age and those with certain conditions, certain comorbidities. Um, so I, I, I think that's, you know, as with anything in life, obviously one can't completely be sure. You can't, you can't protect everybody. You can't. You simply can't. I mean, that's public health or any kind of just living in society requires... But the, the, the risk of death for people who are not quite so old, so the, the figures for people between 40 and 79, I think it was... Mm. Um, the risk of death in that group was much higher with Only if you COVID than it was. Mm-hmm. No, just by age group was much higher than for flu, for instance, with COVID. But if you look at those cases, that they, they, they were people. I mean, they, they, the the risk of death for people without comorbidities is very low. But lots of people have comorbidities. The yes, no, not not. But yes, the, so those. But you know. So then how, so how do you? So that then okay. So we've talked a little bit about how you identify people with comorbidities. But also, also there was the, hmm. there were people in certain um, uh, employment categories who seemed to exactly, and that, that's why I think lockdowns were so wrong that they they were to me a violation of the social contract that they were highly non-communitarian because what we did is we said you're a healthcare worker, okay, you've got diabetes. You're a bus driver, you've got diabetes or you're obese. Oh, but, you know, you're an essential worker, so you can go out and do your job. Those people should have been provided with the means to self-isolate. They should not have been out there doing those jobs. But no, those of us, like myself, who, as far as I've got a bit of asthma, um, comfortably sat in their houses, the laptop classes. We did what we could do. We, we had great times. I... My daughters came home to, to, you know, spend six months with me. When all that happened, uh, we all had lovely lockdowns, and we allowed the working classes, those who had no choice, the front-facing people who were at risk, to go and do their jobs. That was unconscionable. That's what should not have happened. I think that, and that, and we allowed, you know, many. Uh, but we told young people who are practically, I mean, except for those with vulnerabilities, of course, at no risk or very, very small risk of um, dying from COVID, uh, we locked them up. So, so I think that we did, we did send people to their deaths by 
allowing people with obvious vulnerabilities to go out and do the jobs that we needed done because we needed society to function. So I do feel very strongly about that. I feel mm. that we did, we failed people with vulnerabilities because we said, it doesn't matter if you've got vulnerabilities, you can still clean the hospital. <laughs> and that's why in, then you see this sort of ethnic profile which has no basis in genetics or anything. It's just um, because that many black people are poor and they clean our hospitals and like drive our buses and deliver our food and some of those people should not have been out there. Some of them are hospital consultants. Yeah. Who are not poor. And they yes. Died. Mm -hmm. And they died. I think if you look at, I mean, the, the statistics are very, yes, obviously there's some hospital consultants who are also vulnerable. Who should not have been out there. I mean, not everyone, but, but the, the, there are people who are, I suspect the hospital consultant who had a vulnerability had at all, like, you know, I, I mean, I'm also black. Uh, I had, um, the, but I'm of a privileged, you know, live in a privileged community where I could work from home if I had a vulnerability. Mm. And so I, I think privileged people, whether they had vulnerabilities or not, were able to carry on, you know, carry on with their lives mm -hmm. and, and protect themselves. So largely, I think, you know, people with vulnerabilities, I think, had, were, would have been either state-supported or, you know, it's supported by you know, whatever mechanism. Obviously, furlough was brought in, but furlough protected people who were not at risk and had secure jobs. So I, I think that our whole way, there's no way we can protect everybody. And there will always be. You know, it is, you know, look at, people are dying. We shouldn't die, be dying, you know, than the war in Ukraine, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the, this was an emergency, to say that it wasn't an emergency and that some of us might not die. I mean, I could have died, I mean, I had asthma, I'm 50, I was 55, and the, I, there was a risk, but that's a risk I feel as a member of the society, as a university teacher, I should take in order to deliver to my students and to the younger generation the experience they deserve. Just like I take a risk with flu, with many other things. So, yes, some of us might have had bad outcomes. Um, I think the number was very small. Um, those who were at any form of risk, I, I think, should have been. It should have been not just recommended, but enabled in the way the further scheme did, or whatever. To, to, that they should team teach remotely or um, just isolate themselves over that period of time where the risk was high and uh, you know I, I thought it was very likely that a vaccine would be available yes, obviously and so, and so, so, so and yeah, yeah. No, no, well I think that just provided a very uh, you know tangible and sensible way of providing focus protection mm -hmm. so I think we could have done a lot more to, well, what we did is we, sh we locked everyone down. So part of offering focus protection would simply be to do the same, but for 
a much smaller group of people. Yes, yes. I suppose the difficulty with that, so you've got two, two difficulties in my mind. One is identifying the vulnerable people. Well, I don't think that's... that's you don't think that's difficult. I mean, I don't think it's... I mean, I'm not is, saying you is could... actually maintaining that barrier between the vulnerable population and everybody else when, but, the, mm -hmm. when the disease is rapidly spreading mm -hmm. through, through that population. Mm -hmm. But in, well, why in would it be? Terms, mm -hmm. How easy is that to do? But it's it's no more no different to what we did during lockdown. I mean, there, there was no tangible difference actually. I mean, what what when you're locked down? If you're in your home and you get your groceries delivered properly, not by somebody, or, or you don't. I mean, the things we did were to say, okay, you're vulnerable. Go to the shops wearing a mask, pick your vegetables and whatnot. Go to a self-checkout where you touch a screen that everyone else has been touching. I mean, we really didn't do what should have happened. Well, we did, there, there were people who were advised to shield, weren't there? Who yes, I know, but that, that should have been a, a, a broader... And actually the community you know, that's what I'm saying, did an amazing you know, job of making sure that they were looking mm. after. At least they did what <clears> we were doing. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, what you did was the... I don't know. Constant. But, you know, just if you feel, you know, if there's a risk, I would err on the side of caution, definitely. Mm -hmm. And if it's possible to remove yourself without any assistance from the government, which many of us did have the opportunity to do, I think that was absolutely the right thing to do. But also in practice, what happened was that a number of hospitals found themselves under extreme pressure with the number of very sick people they were having to... Okay, let's get that, that first, but, but yeah. let's just look at the focus protection thing. Oh, yes, sure. Yeah, first of all, you know, the idea that we should go down that route rather than lockdown is based very much on the costs of lockdown. Yes. Rather than whether focus protection works. Or right. It's what we were saying, I was thinking, and many of us then, is that lockdown is just too costly. It has too much... We, we will be put throwing the poor and the young under the bus. Mm. Completely, and, and that's not worth it. Mm -hmm. So, focus protection is sort of the best we can do. Now, the ex how do we do that? Is is I was something we should have discussed rather than dismissed. Is is my main point? Far be it from me to suggest that it was a doddle. I mean, I I didn't think it was a doddle. I thought that much of it was already being enacted through the lockdown. It just meant that you know a smaller proportion of people get locked down. And then I did think there were things we could do, like you know, multi-generational households, and to to actually remove people, um, which is called evacuation. That happens in crises. Mm. You evacuate the, the vulnerable, put them in a nice hotel for three months or something. You know, you've just got to. The amount of money that we wasted or spent on this could have been put towards protecting the vulnerable. Um, or you, yes, you do, you know, within households where there's a level of risk for the elderly, maybe you do find ways of homeschooling. I mean, you've got, we've got to try harder, I felt. Mm. So, so that, but, but I, I'm, I mean, it would be absurd to say that was a perfect, you know, it's just lockdown, it's more that lockdown is going to hurt very, very badly. So what can we do instead? We, Lockdown's going to hurt. We also don't want the complete opposite, which is, oh, yeah, well, we don't lock down at all and we just let everyone get on with it. And, yeah, okay, some people die. Big deal. That's also not acceptable. So 
um, you know, the, the point was that maybe this will work. Yeah. What do we do? We were just raising, yeah, yeah. this is a problem. Yeah, it's yeah. not that, maybe this is a solution, that's yeah, what we're yeah, saying. Yeah. But don't rush into lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so hospital care homes being, I mean, the whole healthcare system being overwhelmed uh, is, of course, a big issue. And, and again, that's where resources should have gone. First of all, it is a result of the continual, you know, continued underfunding of those systems. Yes. So what it did, it, you know, what are we doing here? We're saying we've underfunded these systems, we've streamlined them so that they can't cope at a time like this. Um, I mean, part of the focus reason they couldn't cope is because, of course, we didn't institute focus protection on in care homes. You know, no, that we should introduce the virus. We introduced the virus. What we should have done is we spent that money into making care homes, you know, dividing them into smaller units, putting in uh, care work carers in residence for a period of two weeks, should we say, paying them a lot of money to just be there, and then another set of carers maybe comes in. I'm sure there were ways that we could have tried it. Maybe it wouldn't have worked, I don't know. But I think we should have done everything. We should have thrown money at that problem, mm -hmm. not um, just discharged, <laughs> just not thought about it. Um, in hospitals, we run hospitals, we have no resilience in the system. And so, in that regard, I think maybe shutting everything down on the 23rd of March was not unreasonable. It's like, oh dear, we have a crisis and we have stupidly not invested enough in the NHS to, to deal with that problem. Let's at least lock, every, you know, lock everything down for two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is, to, to get on top of it. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't think it would be reasonable for me to criticise that. Um, although locking down for even two weeks in India has an enormous impact in terms of deaths. Um, from lockdown. So, but in this country, yes, it made, made sense to do that. But then that didn't happen. We didn't invest in what we should have done. We should have had fever hospitals for people, you know, because there's a whole category of people who got very, very ill, needed some oxygen, um, needed to be isolated from the vulnerable, and that just completely messed up the hospital system. And that's because we just... That's what pandemic preparedness should be about, mm -hmm. is let's keep, maintain a hospital system where if we suddenly have uh, a pandemic, a, a new virus coming in, which will, like this one, let's say, require hospitalization of a certain segment of the population. They're not gonna die, but they need our care. And if we put them in the hospital with all these other vulnerable people, they will pass it on to vulnerable people and those vulnerable people will die, then you need to set up field hospitals mm. for those people who need that care, but we need to keep them apart from the vulnerable people. I don't understand why that was a bigger ask than you know, what, what we ended up spending money on. Yeah. So we spent money on trying to keep infection levels right down, which I felt was unlikely to work. I don't think it, it, it did, but at the time 
we didn't know. But mostly I felt that the cost of trying to do that was going to be much higher mm -hmm. than whatever else we did. Mm -hmm. So how did the Great Barrington Declaration come about? Let's just so there I was, so, so I was initially, as I said, because I'm, you know, of my expertise, what I was trying to do was just, uh, you know, just ask people to question the fundamental scientific premise on which we were enacting some of these. So there was no evidence that these MPIs were working or anything, um, except that we had these mathematical models saying, oh, look, fewer people have died than we predicted would die, therefore it must be working. That's not really science. So I thought we needed a fuller discussion of that. And I thought that was the only role I could play. But as time wore on, I could see the effects of lockdowns mounting, particularly in the global south. And it's not because I'm from there. I'd like to think even if I weren't from there, and I'm sure um, that is true of many other people, that you don't have to be from the global south to have a responsibility to the global south. I could see this was just causing enormous harm. I could see, having said, you know, my daughters, you know, they were fortunate. One was finishing her degree, the other was um, starting a training contract in law firm, and they came here for six months, and it was great. <laughs> and then they went back, and yeah, it was a difficult year. They were yeah. fine. But I could see that if this had happened at a different time in their lives, I could see other children. I mean, and when you think of deprived children, it, it just, it, to me it seemed that it was, there was a strong humanitarian reason to not allow lockdowns to continue. Um, obviously, also the plight of elderly people being isolated in the way that they were and, um, and, and the ways in which they died was, was also very difficult to, to reconcile with the way that I felt society should, should be. Um, so in the end I decided that, no, I'm not going to just stick to the science. I'm going to say, look, we can't. We've got to think about whether this is the right strategy. Um, so I started to, say, to become vocal on that front. Um, and you weren't an entirely lone voice, were you? I mean, you, you, did, you had people on... Uh, overall, I would say that there were very few people on board. Very few willing people. A lot of colleagues saying, yeah, you're absolutely right. But very few willing to publicly say so. Very few. Um, and I also was surprised that, you know, when I was first just raising concerns, that they were in instantly interpreted as being anti-lockdown. Because I wasn't, I wasn't anti-anything, I was just saying let's find the right solution to, to this problem and lockdowns don't look to me like you're taking a hammer as I've said before to a pane of glass that a fly is sitting upon so but you know can we discuss it was mine but yes there were a few voices sort of that, that I became aware of who were also saying this is difficult we have to look at this in a different way or at least have a debate um, and I was very pleased when, uh, to see that some of them were, because that there, there, unfortunately there, there was another, there were two types of resistance to lockdowns. There was the resistance from those of us who thought it would 
harm, particularly the poor, the disadvantaged, globally, and the young. And then there, there was the, oh, I don't want to be locked down. I want to do what I want to do. Um, that sort of, uh, I guess you'd call it libertarian, but I think the word libertarian is often used. But individualistic, shall we say. Kind of, I don't want to be locked down. I don't, I don't want the government telling me what to do. Well, I mean, I have no time for that because I think that's why you have a government. That's why I'm in a society. Is because it's not the government. The government is us. Yeah. It's us deciding. So I don't have... I'm not... I'm actually... I think you'd still call me very left-wing. I mean, I'm more... I mean, kind of in the Corbyn camp rather than... <laughs> Um, so I, I, I think everything should be nationalised, I think money should be put into national health, I think education should be free, I mean, I'm just, I completely, I've been very um, dismayed by the growth of what I think of as a neoliberal capitalist um, sort of approach to education and healthcare and everything that, that we've seen in the last 30 years. Um, so I was coming at it from that point of view. And then, of course, you have all these people saying, you know, oh, I don't want individual freedom. Now, obviously, personal liberty is an important part of the social contract. But I think that personal liberty has to be negotiated within, you know, what's good for society as a whole. Um, so I have no problem with mandating vaccines. But I do have a big problem with mandating vaccines that don't do what they're supposed to be doing. So, um, anyway, I'm just telling you that that's my position, yes, is that I'm not, I did not. So I had a problem with, I didn't want to be, I didn't, I did not, and I still don't align with people who believe that lockdowns are bad because they are an infringement of your personal liberty. I don't care about personal liberty at that level. Obviously, everyone wants a, a certain kind of liberty, liberty that gives you human dignity or whatever it is but but at a societal level I think no why is that's not important to me it is important that people poor people and young people don't die um, so I was very pleased when Martin Kuldorf, um approached me um, because I, I just he he's one of the co-signatories of yeah. the yeah, he was at, a professor at Harvard right. and he had just written a piece for the Jacobin which is very left wing um, magazine um, in which he'd made these points very clear so I thought okay this is my trial you know, these are people with whom I have uh, you know, an affinity that's where I'm coming from uh, I'm not anti-lockdown <laughs> for any other reason so uh, so he said he had organised a sort of press a conference, small conference um, in a, and would I come and he'd invited Jane Bhattacharya, who's another, who's at Stanford, um, an economy, health economist, a medic, who had been voicing similar concerns and had also conducted a zero prevalence study in, in California, to, you know, with the same idea, I think, of just saying, look, we need to think about these questions before we can go ahead with these ideas about locking people down. Um, so, so. He invited me and I went along and, and the conference was in a very small kind of institute and back of beyond, which Martin had said to me, they are quite right wing, but you know, 
they're okay, you know. And this was in October 2020, yes. is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Um, he said they're a bit right-wing, but no. uh, having said that I'm extremely left-wing, I don't have a problem also with talk, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I think of people who are right-wing as, as evil people. I think they have a different perspective on how best to run an economy um, and um, completely respectful of their opinions. So I didn't have a problem with having a meeting in a, in a small um, institute which was established in the 30s which happened to have a sort of a free market approach rather than my own. So we went there and had a meeting and then we decided on the spur of the moment to write this all down and put it on the web just in case it was helpful to anybody to see. And then it attracted a lot of attention. So, but, um, but for some reason, um, it was dismissed, vilified, um, by a lot of very powerful members of the uh, academic, uh, you know, of academia. And, and the institutions that fund academics. And, I mean, some of the, I mean, I've read some of those responses. Some of them were entirely academically respectful and said, yes, we understand everything you're saying, but we don't agree with you. Um, but I guess because it became such a media thing, mm-hmm. um, it, it was, and you're, I mean, you're used, everybody's used to academic disagreement. That's no, no, disagreement is fine. Nobody but it, when it mm-hmm. got into the public sphere, it did become very personal. What was that like? It was you? terrible. So yeah. even the academic, apparently respectful academic, so the John Snow Memorandum, made very strange, uh, you know, the, the response was odd. First, The first thing they said was, there may be no immunity at all against SARS. Very odd thing to say in October 2020. Then they said it, immunity may not be lifelong, which is, was very likely not to be. But the, therefore, herd immunity is impossible. That is a simple epidemiological mistake. It's not true. That's what we have with other coronaviruses. What happens is you just get reinfected, as you're seeing, and then. But the level of immunity in the population remains the same. Sort of, it's dictated by the R naught, not by the rate at which you get infected. And a lot of them now on Twitter, I see, are just coming round to this. Oh my God, this is Epi one hundred and one. Anyway, and then the, the very valid question, how do we institute focus protection? Yeah. Very valid, and it should have been discussed. But like you say, it didn't. I mean, we had, you know, friends of mine on Twitter <coughs> were saying, this is utterly ridiculous, you can't, it's somebody, one of them said, it's like putting all your antiques in one room when you have a fire and fanning the flames. It's not. It's like putting your antiques in one room and hosing the rest of the house down. But, you know, all of this sort of florid and, um, you know, well, I suppose florid metaphors are hardly... But then, yes, what happened was this concerted... It was a campaign. It was set up, uh, we know now, by Dominic Cummings and his cronies. So, you know, I mean, these. this is the, the right. It's not accusing us of being... Um, you know, stooges being paid by, I don't know, the Koch brothers, I didn't even know who the Koch brothers were, 
But apparently the Koch brothers had given £20,000 to this institute that we visited. The Koch brothers have funded, you know, huge, big institutes in Harvard. They gave Neil Ferguson a prize time again. I mean, it, if you think about it, Oxford, you know, we have the Blavatnik School, the Said business. We have donations from all over the place. Um, you know, Bill Gates funds a lot, funds a lot of our so I found that hypocritical. But also, I mean, of, of course we have received absolutely no funding from any of these mm. quarters. Why do, you don't need to be funded to write a, a one-page declaration. It, it, it was very, very unfortunate mm. That, mm. that that was the route that people took. Because as you say, you know, say I think you're wrong, of course. You know, we may well have been wrong. Somebody has to be wrong. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of science. And, and you had, in fact, by that this time, um, been asked to, to advise the government. We had one meeting, yeah. this was before the Great Barrington Declaration, yeah. Carl Hennigan and I, with the Cabinet, um, in which we were simply asked to lay out our views mm -hmm. um, and asked a few questions afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, and then this was subsequently wildly misrepresented by Dominic Cummings. I came yes, across that in, yes. a, in a select <laughs> committee yes. report. Yes. <laughs> so, but I mean, what, and Jeremy Farrar, among other people, what their line was that if we hadn't spoken to the government, apparently they would have locked down straight away and this would have saved lives. Now, the basic in premise. In the autumn of 2020, yeah. yeah. The basic premise is incorrect. I mean, there's evidence that there are places that did lock down and they didn't and they had the same death rates. Um, but it's also incorrect to say that the government were influenced by us. They never were. I mean, I think they called us in for whatever reason to just be seen to be canvassing a different opinion. Or maybe somebody in the cabinet did say, look, we ought to. Maybe they had some misgivings. I don't know. I was simply called in, presented my opinion, uh, which is now in the public domain, so they know what we said. So there's another accusation that keeps being levelled against me, which is that apparently I said the pandemic is on its way out in May. I do think, I still believe, and particularly now believe, that there was a very large wave. So the acute phase of the pandemic happened largely before March 2020. Uh, but I didn't think it was on its way out in the sense that I knew there would be a set, uh, winter wave. If I didn't think that, why would I have done any of it? I mean, I wouldn't have gone to stuck my neck out if I didn't think there was an issue and that we would have problems in the winter of 2020 and subsequently. I so you just meant it was on its way out for the summer? <laughs> it was on its way out for the summer and also that a large... I did think that a lot of it had already happened. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's the only way we can explain the patterns, given that we now know that they're not driven by the NPIs and the lockdowns, because that experiment has been done. So, but we didn't know at the time. So, so you know, and obviously there's, the truth is never one or the other, it's somewhere in between. But 
Yes, it was it, the, the whole experience of, of being vilified in that way um, was quite astonishing. I mean, as you say, we may have been barking completely at the wrong tree. But it's your duty, your responsibility as a scientist and as a citizen and a thinker to say, I think this is not the right way. And that's all we were doing. Mm -hmm. And we were doing it, we knew, I mean, we didn't, I didn't expect this kind of backlash, but we knew we were, we were not doing ourselves any favours. Mm -hmm. We weren't doing this to promote ourselves or to, to get into the news. I mean, now that it's, I wouldn't say it's over, but I feel that my, I, I have nothing further really to say. Mm -hmm. I'm turning down every single media mm -hmm. opportunity. I mean, I'll, I'll do things like, tonight, yeah, an event where you, uh, or, or go to a conference, I will do those sorts of events. But I'm not appearing on media anymore because that's not my, that's not what I want. Mm -hmm. It's not what I do. And I, I suppose mm -hmm. one of the reasons for the, um, the kind of amplification of it all mm. is that there, there was, as you mentioned earlier, um, there were political divisions on how to deal with mm. the um, with the, the pandemic that mm. did, did come from mm -hmm. political perspectives, mm. as yeah. you say, you might call them libertarian or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and I suppose some might have felt that you were giving them ammunition. Yes, but, um, but I mean, even though that's, that's yeah. absolutely not your own perspective. No, no, but I mean, you can't, the, the problem is, if you're giving someone ammunition, um, you know, it, it depends. If you think this is the right way forward mm. and that this will save the lives of people globally, then you have to do that. Even if someone might seize upon it and say, hey, I told you so, this is actually also the sensible thing to do. I mean, if it happens to be that people who also don't really like lockdown, um, which, you know, it seems most people didn't dislike lockdown that much, within my own community. Um, but if people who dislike being locked down um, re also got ammunition from the fact that lockdown was um, going to harm a lot of people, you know, that's not something we could prevent. Yeah. But, you know, if I'd done this, if I'd had a good PR person on board, maybe we would have um, made that clearer. Yeah, I thought we had made it clear, but I didn't realise that there was this sort of, you know, I, I didn't realise how polarised and toxic the debate was yes, yeah. already, that it would then, you know, separate into the, this sort of factionalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I had known, maybe I would have been more yeah, careful. Mm, mm. Or, you, or if I had PR, yeah. you know, as a sort of. Uh, mm. But, you know, as I said, we've never, in Oxford at the moment, there's no sort of sense that. Um, you know, that, that, that. I mean, Oxford is at the moment following a, an extremely neoliberal strategy in terms of how it obtains funding and, you know, what the relationship is between academia and the market. So it seemed to me that nothing I was doing was in any case 
terribly outside of the, the, the ways in which the university operates anyway. So I, I, I don't really, I do think it's, it's quite strange that, um, that just having had a me the meeting in which to sign this at a, as I said, small think tank, which doesn't even call itself libertarian, it is very um, free market oriented, but that, that, that then, that, that, that I didn't think that was a huge risk. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was a problem. So subsequent to that, then we went and met with the health secretary at the time in the Trump administration. Um, I uh, didn't want to meet Trump himself because I do think <laughs> that's not something I was prepared to do. But, you know, I mean, I've had, we have had to talk to but I don't think that is a violation of any of our principles. You talk to whoever is in... I didn't... I'm not a big fan of Boris Johnson. We have to speak with him. But he, yeah, he was the government. So <laughs> he is the, the government. You have to speak to the government. It mm. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and how... I mean, how painful has it been personally? I mean, you, you, you hinted earlier that even friends on Twitter had... had yeah, been, I think had a, lot of, a lot of friends have been very vicious, um, uh, indeed. Um, um, you know, I think the university has tried its best to protect me, but also keep me at arm's length. It's not... Um, it's clearly had repercussions for me. Very clear. Um, and that's unfortunate, but, you know. Um, and, and not what I anticipated at all. But there have been very clear repercussions. Um, but, and, and yes, the defamation. I, I, think, I think the university should take the defamation situation more seriously. All universities. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that people can get on Twitter and say, why are you using your platform to spread this new word, disinformation, um, it is very unfortunate. So a doctor by the name of Rachel Clark, you know, um, with whom I have personal acquaintance with, uh, tweeted that on the very same day that Sarah Gilbert and Andy Pollard had said exactly the same thing, which is that vaccines do not produce, provide durable uh, immunity against infection. Mm -hmm. So it, there is def definitely a particular desire to target me on this um, from the community. Um, and it's um, it's very problematic. Mm. I think the university should do more to um, discourage that sort of thing. And other universities where you know people find it completely reasonable to go on Twitter or uh, in the media, or indeed in books like Jeremy Ferraro has done, saying that you know apparently. The decision not to lock down in September, made by Boris, which I don't think had anything to do with oh, representations, um, cost 20,000 deaths. 
that's just completely um, I mean you know where does that come from and why is it okay for someone who is the director of the Wellcome Trust to say such a thing publicly you know he, he may think that and it would be very it would have been very productive for perhaps the Royal Society or the Wellcome Trust to put on a debate where we discussed it and it, it could have been the case nobody knows you don't know that's the whole point of being a scientist or, or a thinker or a policymaker is you just do the best you can mm. but you have to follow your conscience you have to do what you you think is right and my conscience said that and, and my rational the rational part of me um, which I think is connected to my conscience said that lockdowns are going to kill a lot of people mm -hmm. and I had to do everything in my power to try and find an alternative solution um, and I thought when the vaccines um, came through and you know again of course we've been labelled as anti-vaccine I mean the AstraZeneca vaccine was first tested using that or one of the first primary testing that occurred was in our lab with this um, methodology that Craig Thompson had developed um, so you know obviously we make that you know I'm trying to make a flu vaccine it's <laughs> it's uh, so I, grounds, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that accusation on, on what grounds were people trying to argue because I don't think we should use this vaccine to, to vaccine to try and to vac we should use it only on those who are vulnerable or you know when I say those are vulnerable again I, there I do accept who's vulnerable so you know, everyone over 50 let's say plus those with obvious comorbidities and what's the argument for not vaccinating people younger than that because there is no benefit to it either the individual or the community because most people of that age very low risk of dying from COVID. Um, it doesn't stop you from passing, you know, it only stops you for a very short period of time from being infected. Very short. My younger daughter actually got COVID two weeks after a booster. Um, so it's not going to stop you from getting it or passing it on. Um, and does it reduce the severity of it? In that age group, it doesn't make any sense to even. And um, at the time, I would have said we didn't have any notion of the risk. You know, there, all, there is always a small risk associated with vaccination. Um, and now we're starting to get a better sense of it because we vaccinated so many people. Um, so it doesn't make any sense to me at all. To subject people to that risk mm -hmm. when they're at no risk of dying from COVID. Well, one thing we haven't talked about is long COVID. Mm. Um, I think long COVID is, uh, you know, it's not surprising. It's post-viral syndromes mm -hmm. are well documented, and I, what I'd like, to, what I'd hope is that uh, the observations of long COVID would perhaps make people a bit more aware that they I think there's been a slight tendency to dismiss 
post-viral syndromes. Mm. And hopefully the fact that you... I think because it all happened. When you have an epidemic, these things which you don't normally see all in one go happen all in one go and it becomes visible. Normally, you know, it happens sort of at a regular rate. Um, but, you know, that's what you saw with long COVID and then, you know, for example, Zika. Because it happens, suddenly you have a susceptible population and it sweeps through and then you get kids being born with microcephaly. The following year it's gone. Mm. There'll probably be one or two kids who, whose mother was unfortunately not um, exposed previously in the womb. But you, you don't see that sort of concentration. And I think long COVID is, is a, is a post-viral phenomenon mm. um, which became highly visible because we were looking at an epidemic where a lot of people got infected all at the same time. Um, but, you know, that's all it is. It's real, it's there. Hopefully it will make people who dismiss post-viral <laughs> complications a little bit more cautious about doing so. Because but you don't think the fact that it's a, a, a quite high prevalence is an argument for vaccinating people younger than 50? I don't think it's uh, there's enough sufficient evidence. I haven't seen... I mean, there have been lots of studies on long COVID. Mm. I don't think there's any reason to expect it, um, that to take the vaccine to avoid long COVID. It's a very, very unlikely outcome. It's real, but unlikely. Mm. So I don't think there's any reason. To, and the vaccine doesn't really prevent you from getting symptomatic disease. So, I mean, a lot of people I know, I mean, it's very well documented, but um, you can get pretty bad COVID after three shots. So I'm not sure to what extent it would I mean, prevent long COVID. Um, I don't think it's, I wouldn't have thought in the risk benefit analysis that you would, you know, flu gives you, can give you the same thing, but you don't. And most of us don't take flu shots unless well, flu shots on. Well, they, I think they're similar to COVID. Isn't it? They don't stop you from getting infected. They might stop you from getting severe disease. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, it's undervalued that. You know, this is remarkable that you have the vac a vaccine mm. that you can give to vulnerable people mm. and then they can they don't need to shield anymore or, or I mean yeah so I I think it's a little bit sad that that aspect of the vaccine has been uh, not been well it's almost that's the problem with rolling is trying to get something to do more than what it's actually capable of doing so for example and I say that about mathematical models are very good at giving you conceptual basis of framework for un un understanding how pandemic spreads or how immunity works and has even led us to make a new flu vaccine. But it's, they're terrible tools for predicting what's going to happen next. So if you push something beyond its capacity, you get into trouble, and which tends to then discredit the whole process itself. So I think, obviously, there are a lot of people shouting 
that her mathematical modeling is all bollocks. And, you know, and that's very unfortunate. It's very... It's kind of heartbreaking mm. because I think, you know, I see it as such an important tool. Um, and, uh, but it's because it was pushed to do things it can't do. And again, vaccination, I think it's been, you know, just wonderful that we've been able to produce a vaccine, which I, I think, you know, still um, does protect against severe disease. Mm, mm, that seems to be... Yeah, I, th I, think, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt there. Yeah, there's still lots of COVID around, but deaths mm. have, have been very low. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, you know, certainly my elderly mother encouraged her to get the vaccine straight away, so... Um, and I was very relieved that she'd had it, so I don't... Have you had it yourself? I've had two of the shots. I didn't get the booster because it didn't make... I don't, I don't think that that... I don't think the booster makes sense. I think two shots should be sufficient. How often do you think that's it? I think if you look at the epidemiology of the other coronaviruses, one exposure... I mean, it, once you've been exposed once or twice, you are... Clearly protected. I mean, we don't die of coronavirus. Mm, no, that's because we had them when we were little. So I don't think you need more than one shot. I mean, one, two. Mm. Um, yeah, you need two because the first really doesn't do much. The second does jack up your antibodies, I think. But I mean, overall, I think personally, I mean, I'd already had it, I think, and then I had it again this March. I mean, it's. It's not. A, I don't think it's really important for people who are not obviously vulnerable to, to have the vaccine. I think natural infection, which will inevitably happen anyway, is what actually the data suggests that it gives you more durable protection, natural infection. But, you know, it's not. I think those of us who are over 50 should just, it, it, I think it's a complete reason for us to go along with vaccinate us but people under 50 I, I think that was uh, that's not a good call um, yeah it's, it's again I don't understand what the motivation is now. Mm. why are we doing it first of all those vaccines should be going in the arms of vulnerable people in the developing world and, uh, you know, if it doesn't give you, if it only gives you three months protection against infection, what are you going to do? You can't keep vaccinating people every three months. And, and what for? I mean, as we've seen, it works. If you either vaccinate the vulnerable or they uh, get natural infection, um, or... You must remember the vulnerable category is a dynamic category. Yeah. So people die and then people enter it. So two years ago, someone who was not vulnerable, if they'd got COVID then and become immune, now when they become, when they get older, will be protected. Mm -hmm. So you have to sort of factor all of that into your thinking about what to do. But I would still say, give that person a COVID jab. Mm -hmm. But again, it's all about focus, but it's about taking the resources we have and trying to protect those who would suffer bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
And again, I might be wrong, but it deserves to be debated. Yes, the fundamental right. point is that why was why were we shut down and smeared in that way? And why still is it uh, am I feeling with it? Because I am. Yes. Yes. So it, I mean how how have those effects manifested themselves? How have they affected your well, ability I, to continue with your I career? I well, I mean when the head of the Wellcome Trust publicly declares that you are spreading disinformation, then you can imagine how reluctant people will be to involve you. Mm. Um, I had a recent experience which I'm uh, very unhappy about, which in which I was asked to give a keynote um, speech to um, a visiting contingent. I'm going to be vague about this because I don't want to implicate them. Um, and the day, and I was asked, this is, so we were going, supposed to be showcasing vaccines, Oxford vaccines to, um, I said, visitors, just important visitors. And I was asked to give the keynote and also to be on a panel. And um, to attend the dinner. The very next day, um, I was told, oh, sorry, um, there was a mix-up, so someone's already been asked to give the keynote. Um, and then, so I said, all right, uh, what about the panel? Oh, no, you're no longer needed on the panel either. Um, but the dinner invitations will follow. Now, as such, I'm now no longer inclined to go to the dinner. But the dinner invitations have not arrived either. So I am wondering whether to ignore this or to take this up with the university because I find it very problematic mm -hmm. indeed. So, but you know, I don't want to make a fuss. I really don't, I never have. It's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting, <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> But yes, I think that effects are tangible, and I mean the idea of getting a grant from any of these places is difficult. Or any papers that we've tried to publish have been turned down immediately. Um, by the top journals, a very flimsy, very flimsy, saying that they would not be of uh, general interest which is astonishing. So, yeah, serious harms to my career. Mm. Mm. But, you know, I'm old enough to weather them. And have you picked up your flu work again? Well, yes, I have, because, of course, it's um, funded by um, industry. Um, so the, the, com the investor who wanted to license this work set up a company and they are, uh, have given us a research grant and they've actually just uh, extended and um, embellished it. Um, so we are um, about to hire someone to carry that work out. Uh, we've already submitted to other patents. Yeah, that, that work is ongoing and I intend I will carry on. Mm -hmm. I'll get funding from elsewhere to mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm going to carry on. 
And in the meantime, of course, I've made connections with a bunch of social scientists. Uh, and, you know, people with whom I think I can have a more nuanced discussion about yes. this, because that's important to me. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about having nuanced discussions. Mm -hmm. And I overall do think that much of what happened is a consequence of the uh, emergence of neoliberal capitalism as um, the, the way that academia and um, other institutions operate. And I, I think it's quite deplorable. <laughs> and, and do you think it's yeah. also to do with, I mean, something that I feel regret about is that, I, I mean, I blame social media. Mm. I feel that polarisation of almost every issue mm -hmm. has just become the norm now. Mm -hmm. So it's very much if you're not with me, you're against me. Yes. Which is mm -hmm. the death of nuance. Which is, which yeah. is, mm -hmm. It's not just the death of nuance, it's the death of ordinary the death of any debate. debate. Any kind of yes, debate. any debate, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. I think it's um, shocking. It's, it's, I did not anticipate that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, of course there should be disagreement. And, uh, I can completely see why people would disagree with me. That's fine. That's completely understandable but but the, the yes this sort of we're not you know we can't talk to each other now because you believe this and you must be supporting Trump that's Trumpian I mean what I just <laughs> it's so pediatric but I think there's there's been an erosion of critical thinking mm. there's just been this sort of I think that's part of the whole, you know, reducing the individual to a consumer rather than a thinker. Mm. The passive consumer has to find ways of expressing, you know, that's what they do. And, mm. and um, instead of critically, or gaining pleasure from critically assessing the situation, what you do is you join a group and you say, okay, you're... Or you feel embarrassed not to be part of a particular group. Mm -hmm. So it's very sad. Mm. So looking back, mm -hmm. is there anything you would have done differently if you knew then what you know now? I, I don't... I mean, given that the forces against us were so strong... So when you think about the people who decided that we should be silenced, and I've been very quiet about saying anything about them, because I don't like to do that. But, you know, Jeremy Ferrara here, who's an old friend, which is very, you know, it's very sad, very sad for me. You know, what, why didn't, for example, why didn't Jeremy pick up the phone to me and say, Shinetra, I don't know where you're coming from. You know, I think you're wrong. I think this could be damaging. Let's sit down and talk about it. Why don't we meet for a coffee or whatever, talk on the phone. During lockdown, why don't we talk about this? No, instead he goes on social media, he writes a book, he writes articles. Um, I, Anthony Fauci, I personal friend, always Frank Collins, but they—I mean, the emails are now public. They said we've got to take this down. 
why take it down? Why not just say, guys, you know, <laughs> we don't know where you're coming from. Let's have a public debate and dismiss us, dismiss that, if you like, but through public debate. So, um, yeah, I do, I do find it all very... What would I have done? So what, could we have done it in a different way? I don't think so, because I think that there was so much pressure. There was so much... This consensus is something that's, I think, becoming characteristic of academia. You have to conform. It's not okay. So as I said, there were colleagues who said we completely agree with you, but we have taken a decision not to involve ourselves in this debate because it's going to become toxic. That was not an option that I had, personally. Um, I could not. I've just stayed silent. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm sure maybe we should have signed the Great Barrington Declaration in, you know, we should call it the Kentucky Fried Chicken Declaration or something, you know, something that made it, maybe the, the optics of that weren't one right you know mm. if I thought about it but as I said the context being a university where they have a Blavatnik school of government does make you not you know it, does, it doesn't make you think oh if I go to a small right-wing institute and sign a declaration it's going to become seen as some sort of conspiracy with the oligarchs of this world, um, I wouldn't have. Yeah, but 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 if somebody had said, like, "What's the best way to do?" It? I, I think maybe I would have said, "Let's make that. Uh, let's sign it somewhere else, and have maybe a broader group of people to sign it, mm -hmm. or something." You know, so I don't know, just. Because there were a bunch of people who, well, I mean, a bunch of people who signed it for starters, and, and there are others who uh, had some misgivings. Who, you know, probably if we'd have, you know, we didn't have time. It was stunts, but you know, we were in an emergency situation, mm -hmm. so we did what, what we could do under those circumstances. Um, obviously, we didn't get everything right in terms of how to have that debate, but, um, and everyone has their own way of doing things, but I don't think, I don't think I had much of a choice in terms of what, um, what I could have done, I'm, but, you know, having said that, I'm sure there were many better ways to have tried to bring this to um, people's attention, and, and the truth of it now is that while I think in many respects, we were right that we failed, and that's all we have to. We failed to convince people mm, mm. that lockdowns would cause this level of harm, shutting schools for this length of time would cause this kind of um, torment, that the economy collapsing means that young people, you know, when you think that young people are going to pay for this, when you think, you know, with the NHS, yes, for years you underfund the NHS. Then you come to this point, a critical point, where now, in order to deal with it, we have to take these drastic measures. 
What are we doing? We're transferring all of that onto the shoulders of, of the youth, of the younger generation. And all of that I find, still find really problematic and, and I feel very sad that I wasn't able to prevent it. Mm -hmm. I mean, or even start a debate around it. So I think at some level I think we, you could say some things we've said anyway will be, have been vindicated, but there's very little comfort when you think of the harm that's been caused already. So what are you optimistic about? What, what do you look forward to? Well, I mean, what, I, what am I optimistic? I mean, I mean I, obviously I live in, I hope that now we will emerge from this and, and learn the lessons. I would like to try and push I don't know, there's got to be some crisis. There is some crisis coming in academia. It's been coming for a long time. But I think this sort of typifies, I mean, it exemplifies some of the problems. And I'd like to work a little bit towards creating a better environment for people. I mean, there's so much emphasis now on equality and diversity and all that, but. Um, what I saw over the pandemic was that, and it's interesting because I was at a social science conference where people were talking about object and subject. If you are the BAME object, then it's fine. But if you become, raise yourself from that position to become a subject, as I did, then you are completely disregarded. And I think I do feel for the first time in my life that there was a discrepancy between how I was treated and how other people of the same, you know, with the same level of qualification or, and uh, expertise, should we say, how, how they were treated. And uh, you mean uh, from the same perspective, who had the same perspective as you on the right thing to do? No, not necessarily. No, right. just, just generally that, that there was, you know, like right at the outset, I was not consulted at any point. There was no point at which someone thought, oh, well, maybe we should have a chat with. Um, I, I, yes, I and do were think... were other people in zoology? Because I know there was a big meeting initially, but it only involved people in medical sciences. Um, no, I don't think... that. There, I mean, there... Uh, no, but, you know, the, the, uh, the t there were people in zoology but there were two heads of zoology at the time, and mm. one was incredibly supportive, mm. but the other was very much less. Yes. But there, I mean, there was no consultation. I mean, there all of these groups that met to discuss what would happen with the pandemic. The only person who invited me to contribute to any kind of discussion was I've forgotten his name, chap in um, communications department, some public. Um, some one of the administrators but overall it was okay where do I think there was I feel there was some sort of discrimination one was one is that I was just simply not consulted to start with at all um, 
I mean, in this university, there aren't many people who work on exactly this field. Mm -hmm. So I think it's strange. Secondly, I think that the ways in which I was dismissed by people, I wonder if they would do that to a white male colleague. And I've never had such a thought before. In my entire career, I've never felt that. But I just wonder whether people would be quite so dismissive. Because, you know, you can do, you can just see that, you know, here are people that, who have less than a history in this area. They don't have the same expertise. But you're privileging them and saying, I'm going to go with their opinion over yours, rather than, let's, let me hear. And, you know, there were a lot of people who decided they knew what was right. Which is interesting. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that you should always just say, well, you're the expert, you must know. But to completely dismiss me, as many of these people did, right at the end. So I'm not saying that didn't happen to other people who weren't, um, who, you know, weren't of colour and female. But um, I think there are certain instances we just felt for the first time. Would you really do this to me? Mm. And had you considered taking that up with G? As I said, I don't like to make a fuss. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something I've felt. Mm. And maybe I'm wrong, mm. but I've never felt that before. Yeah. But I think my question mm. is, what do you feel optimistic about that? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't... Um, I mean, I feel... I don't feel, I mean, I, I hope this next the generation, that's, um, I think that right now our job is to try and um, make sure that the next generation has a good life. Mm, mm. So that's how I see it. So I'm hoping that what they've seen will give them the courage to think about all of these things in a mm. different way mm. and I'm, I'm encouraged by actually I'm encouraged by um, the, the moral fibre that I see in my uh, my own daughters actually, one of whom is an immigration lawyer yeah. uh, who gave up a commercial opportunity a very high paying job to be an immigration lawyer and work in that area um, and the younger ones actually doing a PhD uh, in science, but you know they're, they're just very, very committed mm. to um, a communitarian way of life, and so that gives me a lot of optimism. And their friends are as well, so um, so that that that's really my main source of optimism. And with re regard to my own self, I will be carrying on with the work I'm doing, and I know that I. I will have to get funding from different sources, but you know, I th I've, I've consider myself very fortunate to have been in a position where I could make my position clear, and now with a clear conscience can live the rest of my life. Mm. <laughs> um, even though with much sadness that lockdowns have caused so much.